and welcome to Dot to Dot, the podcast that connects the dots on how to be you with me, Fiona Merton, psychologist and author. So uh, today I am joined. Now, could you say your name? Because I'm very good at saying names wrong. Christine Woon Ordahl. Fabulous. So uh, a professor at UC Davis. Professor of Neuroscience, and you correct me at any point if I'm getting this wrong, um, whose, whose research specialism is autism, and you caught my attention, or your, one of your studies caught my attention, which was looking at different types of autism in, um, sorry, different types of anxiety in people with autism. And to me, it makes complete sense as neuroscience on the surface of it often does, but that doesn't mean we can see what's happening in the brain. And that's what you're doing. You're making sense of it from the inside out, as it were, which is really, really fascinating. So, I mean, if you don't mind, if we start with that, and then I'd love to hear a bit more about you and your journey. So um, that's kind of like one of the most recent studies. I think Mm -hmm. you were co-author, co-lead author on it. So... Could you tell, yeah. tell us a bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So if I can step back a little bit, though, and tell you about, you know, the, the larger study where we, we looked, we decided to look at co-occurring anxiety and autism as one facet of this larger study. But I've been involved in this study called the Autism Phenome Project at the Mind Institute for since 2006 is when we started it. And um, we've been following this large cohort of children diagnosed with autism at around two to three years of age. And we've been following them. Some of them are now teenagers and young adults. So it's been 16 years. And what we've been doing across this entire time is really looking at each child, taking a comprehensive picture of their behavior, their medical diagnoses, their brain imaging. We do EEG in some of the kids as well. And then we're trying to look at, you know, life and development and how autism changes, how they change and grow over time. And one of the things that we've been really interested in is this emergence of co-occurring anxiety in autistic individuals, because that can be really challenging and debilitating for a lot of autistic people. And so we wanted to follow them from very early on, looking at how their brain is growing. And we're focusing on a certain structure called the amygdala, which has long been associated with both autism and anxiety. And so this is a a, a very, um, it makes sense to look at the amygdala and how it's growing in this cohort of children with autism. So we have this, um, we've been following them. Anxiety can be clinically diagnosed uh, around, you know, middle childhood to early adolescence is when you can receive a clinical diagnosis of anxiety. So that's what we were focusing on in the study. However, we have brain development data from all of these children from the very beginning, from when they were two years old, all the way up to about 12 years of age. And we're looking at how um, the emergence of anxiety symptoms in this cohort of children, and along with how the amygdala has been growing all along. Does that make sense? It does, yes. Okay. So um, one of the really challenging things has been identifying anxiety in children with autism. And one of the challenges there is because there is uh, a diagnosis already of autism, sometimes it can be challenging to identify the anxiety on top of the autism. So um, does anxiety present exactly the same way in kids with autism as non-autistic individuals? Probably not, right? There are autistic individuals who have sort of the traditional DSM anxiety diagnoses like Uh, separation anxiety or phobias or generalized anxiety. But what we found in our cohort is that there are also these sort of autism distinct anxieties. So these are anxieties that aren't present in all kids with autism. So they are anxiety. There's this anticipatory worry component to these anxieties. But their anxiety is not so much about say negative evaluation for social anxiety. So social anxiety is negative fear of negative evaluation from their peers. In autism, it could be more uh, a, a social confusion, you know, not a fear of negative evaluation, but really a social confusion as to what's going on and an anxiety related to that. So it's a little bit different from mm. traditional DSM anxiety. There's also um, fears or worries related to an autistic child's special interests, you know, 
uh, anticipatory worry about access to their special interest. It's a different kind of sort of a different flavor of anxiety than you would see in a non-autistic individual. And so in our study, we have a large cohort of kids and we separated kids based on whether they have these traditional DSM anxieties versus these autism distinct anxieties. And then we had a group of kids who with autism who didn't show any signs of anxiety. And what we found was that their amygdalas were growing differently in all three of these different subgroups of autism. So, so one of the things that the overarching goals of our project is to try to identify these different subtypes or subgroups of autism, try to better understand the underlying biology of each of these subtypes, and then work to develop treatments or interventions or supports or predictors of how people are going to end up based on their brain and other medical you know, sorts of components um, so that we can really predict outcomes in specific subsets of kids and help them. You know, that's the ultimate goal. So, um, so we were pretty surprised thinking that the amygdala was going to be enlarged in kids with autism and anxiety. We found that to be the case, but only in the kids with autism and these traditional DSM, form, DSM forms of anxiety. In kids with autism who had these distinct anxieties, their amygdalas were actually growing slower and were smaller than the other children with autism. And so, and this was, these were sort of different trajectories from the very beginning. So from age two and on, these trajectories were present, even though the clinical symptoms of anxiety weren't fully emerging until later on in childhood. It's fascinating. It's, it really is. And, I, and I, I noticed somewhere I read that you splitting out those, those three subgroups, if you'd merged the two, the two groups of anxiety, it would have covered up the results to some exactly. extent. That's exactly right which is it's so important because when it comes to treatment being able to understand that cause being able to understand what's going on in the brain even for someone who doesn't understand how the brain works it says there's something there that's physical and mm -hmm. this isn't made up it isn't imaginary it's real I don't know that sometimes I think with when when you can put something medical or physical on something people believe it more whereas when it's a little bit more <coughs> self-report or, or all those right. sorts of measurements people tend right. to be a little bit more suspicious of what comes out of it but you're also using very large sample sizes aren't you Com compared to a lot of yes. uh, maybe neuroscience studies which yeah. makes the I'm um, um, presumably when they're replicated, the replication is going to be um, more valid as well. Yes. So one thing, you know, when we're trying to identify different subgroups or subtypes of autism, once you start slicing up that pie, the, the, the subgroups can get very small. So we need to start with a very large sample size. And we have about 400 families that have participated in our study, which sounds like a lot. But then when you start slicing it up and you know, only 10 or 15% are in one subgroup versus another, it does start to get smaller. So replication is going to be key. And there are other large scale studies that have this type of data now, some going on. We're working with to sort of replicate our findings across the different independent cohorts, which is really important in science. Um, but I wanted to go back just for a moment to this, this idea that having um, some sort of different biology can sort of validate a subtype, right? So this distinct presentation of anxiety is not set in stone. You know, it's something that uh, Connor Kearns, who's one of our collaborators, has really been leading the charge in de defining these distinct forms of anxiety. But there is some, you know, uncertainty in the field as to whether these are real, you know, or are they, um, you know, just a different manifestation of autism in some way. And in our view, finding a biological underpinning of, you know, slower and smaller amygdala growth sort of validates that this is a real subtype, right? That this is something real that's different from traditional forms of anxiety. And therefore, you know, with a biological target, we can look for different early predictors. We can, you know, potentially uh, the same sort of anxiety treatment that works in a child with traditional generalized anxiety disorder is not going to work the same way in a child with distinct anxiety. And maybe we can look at their amygdala development in early childhood 
and really before the full manifestation of the behavioral symptoms, we can get an idea of what course this child might be on and intervene earlier using more effective treatments. That's what we're hoping for. And that's really exciting. It's exciting to hear, it's hopeful to hear. And I think the longitudinal nature of your studies, of course, helps that as well. When you've got, I think, was it your APP study group from, the, you know, you started with these children who were two to three years old, who are now 19 to 20. Yes, yes. Yeah, it stands for the Autism Phenome Project. So the idea of there being different phenomes of autism. Thank you. And then there's also, I mean, the GAIN, which mm -hmm. is more about girls. Girls. Yes, so GAIN stands for Girls with Autism, Imaging of Neurodevelopment. And these are really just acronyms so we can talk about our, our various studies. Um, but GAIN is really part of the APP. It was born a little bit later. It was born in 2014. Um, and I started the GAIN study because uh, I felt the need to really focus more on autistic girls. So autistic girls, I think, you know, probably most people know, girls are diagnosed with autism much less frequently than boys. So it's about a four to one ratio, at least here in the US, so four boys diagnosed for every one girl. There is some controversy about that because there does seem to be this idea that some girls are just going misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. And so that ratio is likely um, not exactly accurate. That's why I'm talking about diagnoses rather than a hard number of autistic girls versus autistic boys because there's that diagnostic component that's a little bit uncertain. Nevertheless, um, I think that most people would agree there are still more boys diagnosed with autism than girls. And most of our research samples reflect this. So in the APP, the original cohort that we had, we had, um, you know, we were just recruiting kids from the community, taking whoever was coming in, and we had about five times as many boys as girls diagnosed with autism in our study. And that was pretty typical for most studies. But because we had a large sample size, so we had about 180 kids with autism in our study, about 150 boys, we had 30 girls with autism. And I'm interested in the brain, I study neuroscience, um, and I was finding some differences in boys in our, my 150 boys with autism that I wasn't seeing in my girls, but I only had 30 girls with autism. And so the question was, well, is this a real difference? Am I really not seeing it in the girls or do I simply not have enough girls in my sample to be able to say for sure? And really the only thing we could do was recruit more girls <laughs> into the study. And so that's how the GAIN study was born, was to specifically target more girls to enroll in the study so that we could have a more sex balanced cohort. So now instead of a five to one ratio of boys to girls in our study, it's a two to one ratio, which isn't perfect. You know, I would love to have a one to one ratio of boys to girls, but that's gonna take some time. So we now have about a hundred girls, autistic girls in our study that we're following, um, which is uh, one of the, I think, if not maybe the largest sample size of girls from a single site anywhere. Um, and it's really valuable. It's cohort and we're learning so much it's fantastic and it takes someone like you to sort of put a stake in the ground and say right let's do this differently let's make make sure that they are being studied because I know from um that people mistake me as a clinical psychologist and I have to tell people no <laughs> I'm an occupational psychologist but I get a lot of parents coming to me saying I think my daughter has autism what do I do and I'm like well go and see someone who can help you but but I'm always I'm I'm reading more and more and more about it and I have concerns with with one of my own children and there isn't a huge amount out there that's proper when I say proper I mean scientifically backed information on how girls differ and in my geeky style I love drilling into research papers and seeing what I can find and I'm finding it's quite flimsy information. And but we know we can see you hear from people talking that there's differences, but it's not being recorded or studied or and then how is it even replicated if no one's doing it in the first place? And you're doing that. Um, and that's what I got. One of the, the other things I got very excited about when I started looking into to what you were studying, because it's not just that you're studying, but it's that you've made that stand to say, 
this is what we're going to do. And um, thank you for that, because it's really immensely valuable to girls all over the world. Well, thank you for that. Um, I am certainly not the only one <laughs> studying girls with autism. Uh, there are, uh, and it's it's growing. There are, there is a lot more attention focused on um, looking for similarities and differences between girls and boys with autism. So there are many. Uh, well, there's a growing number of clinicians and scientists that are focused on this issue. Um, but I was so I relate to you because I'm not a clinician either, right? I'm a neuroscientist, and um, people in my lab sometimes. Uh, give me a hard time because I will say I'm just a neuroscientist. I noticed uh, that on one of your talks. I was thinking, really, really, I wouldn't put just in front of that. But I do feel that because I, like you, you know, when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I'm worried about my daughter with autism, I feel like I have information, but I don't have that clinical degree to actually make a diagnosis. So I, I do sometimes feel helpless in, in that aspect. Um, so that's why I say just a neuroscientist, although I do think that, um, you know, we need to understand the biology as well as the clinical presentation and clinical needs of girls. If we really want to fully understand and, and help, um, it, it really has to be from an interdisciplinary approach. So not just neuroscience and clinical psychologists, but we also need the developmental pediatricians, the immunologists, the gastro, you know, there are so many different uh, professions that need, and we need the occupational therapists and the speech pathologists too, all of them to understand that there could be these differences between boys and girls and therefore different needs and different supports. Um, one thing that I think has gotten a lot of attention is this idea that girls with autism may mask more and they may be able to better hide their, their characteristics of autism. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a growing awareness of that among clinicians in terms of getting accurate diagnoses. So really being able to delve deeply in the diagnostic assessments to make sure you probe a, an autistic or a girl that you're assessing over and over to draw out the symptoms because sometimes on the surface level, they can sort of fake it <laughs> for a little while. Um, but I think that there's more awareness about that now. And I am very passionate about um, not just girls with autism. So, you know, when I came into the field, autism is a spectrum. And there's a saying, if you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism, right? Um, and I felt like at the time, most of the research studies were really focused on a small sliver of this autism spectrum. And this tended to be males school-age males with normal IQs, with normal intelligence, because, um, you know, that, that sort of makes sense in some ways. Um, but then there is, I felt like the research was leaving out the entire rest of the spectrum, including girls, including young children, and including children with intellectual disability. So that's my other thing that I'm very passionate about is it may be more challenging and difficult for families of children with intellectual disability to participate in research, but that's then our job to make it easier for them to make sure their children feel included because we need to learn about them as well so that we can help them. Mm. And, and, and I also heard you talk about gender variance and non-binary being incredibly important on one of your, yes. one of your talks, which, which I completely concur with. And actually, from a very anecdotal perspective, I'm seeing a lot of that in my daughters both go to a girls' school um, and the non-binary uh, children do, uh, there's a high, there seems to be, and I'm saying this anecdotally, it's very different from a scientific diagnostic, but a higher prevalence of autism in those non-binary. And I'm, I don't, I mean, I haven't looked into it and I haven't researched it. It's literally just sort of looking at it and making an assumption from, from um, observation um, but it's important. It's so important because there's enough complexity for children that are going through struggles around gender in and of itself without then having autism and the related anxieties to deal with as well. Exactly. Yeah, this is a, another emerging area of research is this uh, gender variance or gender identity differences in autism. And there have been studies showing higher rates of gender variance in autistic people. And then on the flip side, 
higher rates of autism in uh, non-binary identities as well. And I think that this is, you know, that so I sort of came into this from a very much a biological sex, you know, assigned female at birth sort of thing. And that's how my studies have been um, written up so far. But as my this cohort that I've had the privilege of working with has grown up, we're realizing we can't just ask, we can't think about gender in a male, female sort of way anymore. Um, there is more gender, uh, more different gender identities uh, that, like you say, intersect with biological sex and all of the other complexities of autism um, that just represent another layer that we have to look at. So one of the things that we're interested in looking at in my lab, and this is led by um, a former postdoc of mine, Josh Lee, who's now a faculty member, um, we've found these biological sex differences in the brain, right? So differences between boys and girls, but now how does that layer on to gender identity? You know, what is this intersection between the biological sex that we see in the brain and the gender presentation? Um, I think it's gonna be a very fascinating field um, and could be, again, very useful in helping with predictions and helping with supports and things like that. Yeah, and I think supports is so important because, uh, you know, I think adolescence in and of itself is confusing and difficult enough. And when you add in all these other complexities, it just makes yeah. it a, a very difficult world to navigate. And puberty, um, right? And, and puberty, yeah. puberty. Hormones as well. Hormones and... Um, yeah, it, there's a lot to take into consideration. A lot of the um, kids in our cohort are now entering this middle childhood adolescent phase. And I think it's just such a critical part of their development that we're really trying to capture, you know, the brain differences that go along with pubertal status and gender identity and biological sex and co-occurring anxiety and depression. It's all so, so important. Another thing we're focusing on um, in the GAIN study is the emergence of co-occurring ADHD. So that's a, a big, uh, you know, a, a lot of people with autism have co-occurring ADHD and that can actually be really uh, challenging as well. And so, and of course ADHD is diagnosed less in girls in general. And so you sort of have this double whammy of um, what does ADHD look like in non-autistic people, but then what does it also look like in autistic and and girls on top of that. So, um, but that we have to, we have to study all of these things because it happens all together in one person. It's not like you just have people with autism and nothing else. Um, you can't just study that, so. What I think is really encouraging and I, I see it from, um, I, I mean, I'm on the outskirts of academia, but the, the when I am interacting with academia is this, interdisciplinary approach to so many things is becoming much stronger and whether that's in my field which would be psychology behavioral science with economics but in your field and neuroscience in my field will we'll, we'll sort of interrelate but in your field it is the like you said it's not just the um psychiatry and the clinical psychology that's being studied as the uh, together with neuroscience but you've also got the gastroenterology and you've got the pediatrician and all mm -hmm. of those things make up a person mm -hmm. and I mean I think I'm also thinking thank goodness for the advances we have in in data science to be able to study this complexity yeah. and deal with the huge amount of data and information that that's yeah. having to be plugged in yeah no that's exactly right and um you know, we have a lot of data that is just waiting for the data scientists to, to tackle, right? And these were, and what's exciting is that these are some of these new multivariate or normative modeling type ways of looking at the data didn't exist when we first started this study. Same with um, some of the, you know, biological techniques didn't exist. Certainly some of the genetic assays, we now do whole genome sequencing in, in some of our kids. That didn't exist when we started um, using stem cells. So induced pluripotent stem cells. We have some of those types of studies going on. Wow. Um, 
that didn't exist when we first started either. So um, science is evolving and we're just trying to capitalize on all these new technologies um, to, to really, we, you know, we see this APP and gain cohort as really a resource and a gold mine sort of that we can keep learning from for years and years, even as we're still collecting data and we're actually still enrolling new kids into the study as well, because we just want to keep this cohort going as long as we can. Uh, and that's what I was going through my mind as well, is I see um, in my field of psychology, machine learning starting to be applied to data sets that have been in separate studies for years, you know, pulling it all together. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. But but I would, I mean, I'd like to know a bit more about you, if you don't mind, because that's what I do. I find out <laughs> more about people. So you went to Cornell. So you grew up on, tell me, tell me, where did you grow up? What was, what's your background? My background. So I, I grew up in Maryland. My parents are immigrants from Taiwan. Um, they came over and um, I was born in Pennsylvania and grew up in Maryland and have always been interested in uh, science for sure. Um, when I went to Cornell, I actually went in as a neurobiology major and so was very much interested in, in neuroscience and then didn't feel quite fulfilled with only the biology. And so I was found myself taking more and more psychology classes as well and ended up doing both <laughs> because I, I couldn't pick just one. So I did neurobiology and behavior as well as psychology. Um, and when I was there, I um, started working in a research lab and it was very, I was always interested in learning and memory and the brain and the mechanisms of that. Um, and the lab that I actually got involved with was looking at um, the effects of prenatal lead exposure uh, on, on the offspring, on, on babies. And so we were using a rat as an animal model actually. So I started off my research career um, using animal models. And so we would have pregnant moms of rats and they were fed lead you know in their water in their diet and then we would examine learning and memory traits in the offspring in the baby rats and um, so I spent many hours uh, testing rats in mazes and things like this feeding them fruit loops and chocolate chips <laughs> for their rewards and um, you know ultimately was we found differences in um, learning and memory uh, in in the in these offspring rats, but it was, I mean, this was many, many years ago and it was the start of my scientific career. Uh, but I just, I, I, I didn't feel for me and I do support preclinical research definitely. And I see the importance of it, but for me, it was not where I wanted to go. I wanted, I knew I wanted to switch over to working with humans. And so actually when I was at Cornell, I also worked in an infant development lab. And so my friends used to joke that I would, torture rats, you know, in these mazes. And then I would also torture babies because I was, um, we were investigating the uh, emergence of reaching behavior in babies, oh. so in like three months old. So my job as an undergraduate research assistant was to hold a toy in front of the baby to get them to try to reach. And then I would have to pull the toy away <laughs> from the child. <laughs> Which is not so fun, right? Um, but, um, you know, we were looking at motor patterns and how they were able to, you know, make that fine motor uh, reach sort of development of that reaching behavior and integrating it with the sensory input and things like that. So yeah, was that um, at all similar to um, um, Rizzolatti, what he looked at Palmer University with the I mean, looking at macaque monkeys. Yeah, the mirror neurons is, yeah. is what you're thinking about. Yeah, um, I think this is even before that. So this is really just like a three-month-old baby and how they're coordinating their motor pattern. And then you can throw on sort of imitating actions of others later on. I mean, that's all happening at the same time. Um, I'm just giving you a background. I haven't actually thought about this in years. Like it's great. The start, <laughs> of my, uh, start of my scientific career. So I did both of those things. Um, as an undergrad at Cornell and um, promptly got burnt out. <laughs> so I did a lot of, um, you know, I was working in two labs. I did a um, honors thesis and Cornell is also very high pressure. And so I took a year off. I actually went um, and lived in Costa Rica for a year um, doing social justice work, like something completely different from science because I wanted to take a break and just see, you know, it was grad school 
really want to, do I really want to do science for the rest of my life? And skipping ahead, yes, that was, <laughs> I did come back to science. Um, but I think it was important to take a year off to just make sure and try other things because academia is not an easy road. I'm sure you know. Um, you sort of have to be all in and it's not, um, I mean, it's incredibly fulfilling and I love being able to work on problems that I find important and I'm passionate about. Um, but it is, you know, it is always finding grants and, you know, yeah. trying to support the research is, is really challenging. Um, but I think when you really believe in what you're doing and, and working on, you know, this is partly why I'm working in an area that is so understudied is that it's, um, it needs to be funded, right? It needs to be done. And so there's, there's that part of it. Um, so I spent a year abroad um, and uh, came back and applied, moved out to California and applied to graduate school at Davis. And I've actually been at Davis ever since. So I came to Davis in 1998 um, and have been here. I did my graduate work here, postdoc at the Mine Institute and then stayed on as faculty at, at the Mine Institute because there's really no other place in the world like the Mine Institute to do autism research. And so I just couldn't imagine going anywhere else that's fantastic and I, I mean I love I love California um and I've I've only been to Sacramento once but do you know my co-founder actually for for I, I won't explain in detail now but my co-founder for a business I, I'm now running on mentoring went to UC Davis oh yeah so he was from Silicon Valley and okay. uh, he's now in London but he um and and married to a bulgarian so he's got sort of like a whole <laughs> remit of international of, yeah um but he, he was talking to me the other day about uc davison just saying as a town as well it's just got a lovely vibe to it it's got yeah. um a really friendly place with in the middle of countryside and just right. a good good place to be it's a good quality of life here and it's UC Davis is, is one of the most collaborative places I've ever experienced. Um, everybody just wants to help and there's so much knowledge and expertise here. And, you know, there's never any sort of feeling of competition or silos or, um, you know, you can't have my cohort because I want to publish first. I've just never experienced that in my 20 years at Davis. And, Which is pretty amazing because, you know, you see that a lot in academia. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel really, really lucky. So you should come visit us. Sometime. I will do. I definitely will do. And actually, I have a friend who's about to move to Sacramento as well. Interesting, really interesting. And I'd love to know more about what you did in Costa Rica. But <laughs> I could talk That's a different to you. podcast. I could, talk, I could talk to you all day on this. Something else you mentioned that I, I was really interested in, and again, it plays to this interdisciplinary nature is the observational studies of boys and girls in the playground mm -hmm. um, and the flitting behavior. I found that fascinating. Can you tell us a bit more about sure. that? So this is not my research. I am a fan of this research. Um, and I did talk about it in um, a talk I gave about camouflaging and autism, um, but I just found it so fascinating. And I just wanna just add that I have a son and a daughter um, so I know how boys and girls are different and I watch them, um, you know, the scientist mom watching her kids, yeah. my poor kids, um, grow up and, and, and just the differences in their behavior. And this is partly why I said, we've got to be studying girls and boys with autism separately because they're different. And, and you know, that as a mom, you know, that, you know, scientifically too, but observationally, this study, this playground study, um, and the first author on this study is, I'm blanking on her first name, but I think it's Dean et al. is the study. Um, and they looked at, I believe it was second graders, and they were looking at playground behavior. And again, this is sort of a study looking at how girls mask, autistic girls can mask or, or look like they're fitting in. Mm -hmm. This is an idea of how autism can, can be missed in girls potentially. And so in this study, there were people observing on the playground, just what, what were kids doing on the playground in one minute increments. And what they found is that, as you might expect, um, boys engaged in a lot of sort of group play. 
So sports and things like this. And girls did too. Foursquare is very, very common, at least in the US on, on playgrounds. Boys with autism spent most of their time alone on the playground in solitary. Uh, it, this was different from autistic girls. Autistic girls sometimes would spend time alone, but they would also look like they were engaged with social groups. Um, but what it turned out to be was that these girls were sort of on the edge of these social groups. They weren't ever really fully engaged and immersed in these groups, but they would flit from group to group. So if you just were a casual observer and looking out, it would look like the autistic girl was hanging out with the other girls. But if you looked a little bit deeper, you could see that they were never fully engaged with a group. And in fact, they would just go from group to group more often than non-autistic girls, suggesting that they weren't quite fitting in, but they looked like they were fitting in, right? So I thought that was a really fascinating study. And I think these kinds of observational studies are so important. They complement um, brain, you know, this is not something we would do in biology or in an MRI scanner, you can't do that. Um, but, but you have to take information from all the different disciplines and put them together. So now there are studies trying to look at masking or camouflaging behavior, both in terms of uh, standardized questionnaires. So how can we actually score how much a girl is camouflaging? And then can we put them into an MRI scanner and look for areas of the brain, these compensatory uh, strategies that you're using, what different neural systems are being engaged at those times. And, um, and that's an area of research. Uh, Meng Chuan Lai is, is one of my colleagues who has done some of this imaging work on camouflaging. And uh, I think it's really important. And it's something that we would like to be doing as the girls in our cohort are getting older and we're able to do these types of studies. That's really interesting and absolutely critical, I think. And from, uh, from the type of psychology I do, it's, um, it's observational it's, and it's mm -hmm. talking to people and it's doing psychometric testing and what have you. But I can see with girls being diagnosed or not diagnosed with autism, how easy it would be to miss because and I think the internalizing is another thing I, I don't know if you can talk a bit about that but that the, these these factors that basically I mean I think you they're called and correct me if I'm wrong compensatory masking and assimilatory and but the internalizing factors of girls sort of getting on with it almost and what what is that doing in the brain and what what impact is that having on the brain as well because surely that puts a cognitive load on right. the brain. Right, or stress, right? Yeah. So yeah. The, the idea is that, you know, girls may be able to mask their autism traits in more environments or use different strategies, compensatory strategies, um, but it's all very effortful, right? It's not coming easily. It's not coming without some sort of cost. Um, and just like you said, it's this cognitive load, it's this burden. And just anecdotally, I've talked with families where, um, you know, after school, the girl gets home from school and she has a meltdown or she has some sort of breakdown because she's just been keeping it together, you know, for eight hours at school. And when she gets home, she can be herself again and just lets it all out. And that's, um, unfortunately, it happens. And I, I think to some degree, it happens to all people. <laughs> you know, I've, I've often said that, um, you know, imposter syndrome is very real for women in general, mm -hmm. and um, we all feel it, but I think it's a different, to a different level mm. of masking in, in people with autism. But I think, you know, just as an aside from an immigrant, um, I come from an immigrant background. Immigrants um, do a lot of masking as well, you know, mm. assimilating into a culture that's not familiar to them. Um, that's, you know, for me living in Costa Rica, even though Costa Rica is an easy place to live, it's still assimilating. It's feeling different and having to act in a certain way. Um, and it's exhausting. You know, I, it, it's, and speaking in a different language is exhausting. Um, and so we are interested in looking at the neural systems involved in these things and, you know, perhaps developing interventions that can drive these systems better or use them more efficiently. Um, recognizing that this camouflaging is going on and, and keeping in mind the co-occurring anxiety or depression that could be going along with these masking behaviors um, and making sure that we have wraparound services to treat that. Um, because this girl 
needs support, right? Yeah. And And boys do it too. I don't want to just make this about all girls, but there is evidence that girls will do, will, will engage in camouflaging in more different scenarios and use more different type strategies of camouflaging than autistic boys. And if it can extend beyond uh, autism as well. So if you're, you're finding systems in the brain or mechanisms within the brain that may replicate in different populations where, mm-hmm. I mean, I, when, when you're talking about immigrant, my mother-in-law is Chinese, grew up in South Africa and then moved to the UK and then was partially deaf for a lot of her adult life. And I so often think about the amount of effort she must have had to put in because she looked different, she sounded different, and she couldn't hear a lot of the time. And it, she prefers she she wouldn't mind me saying she prefers to stay at home most of the time. And you can see why because it's a big effort to go out and to have to do that and have to face that. It's interesting how it can happen in different ways in different populations. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that I think it's distinguishing different forms of anxiety within autism, I think it's recognizing the spectrum, recognizing the complexity, the individual, and um, and never, never dismissing how someone else is experiencing things because we yeah. don't know. Right. I think that's right. I think it's just layer on layer of complexity, right? So you have neurodiversity, you have racial and ethnic diversity, you have all of these different things, but it really, it's, it's coming down to the individual. And, you know, going back, just thinking about having something biological. So knowing that there are neural systems that are activating or, or different in these individuals can some, sometimes can validate the experience a little bit, right? So is camouflaging a real thing? Well, if we can identify neural systems that are driving it, then it it is more likely to be accepted as a real thing. And then there's something that we can do about it, right? Um, so that's sort of my goal. You know, neuroscience, neuroimaging at least, I think can only take us so far. And, and I don't think that it's going to be solving autism or depression or anxiety by itself, but it's looking at neuroimaging as one piece of all of these different factors. Um, and that's how we're going to improve lives. I mean, that's, that's really the overarching goal, right? And I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, that's what, that's what everything's about for me is trying to improve lives and look at how we can do that. And I do think it's taking evidence and research and breakthroughs from across disciplines and weaving it all together. And I think actually COVID's a fantastic example of how when we do all pull together on something globally, we can we can yeah. respond from a scientific perspective so fast. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, COVID has been sort of like this scientific miracle in terms of how, how science has worked together to develop the vaccines and, you know, just the, the, the way science should be working. I think um, there, there is a silver lining to COVID in that we sort of dropped all of the bureaucracy and all of that and just did science and showed really what science could do. And I think that's really promising. There have been other issues with, you know, the opposite side of things, um, but I see it as really hopeful and invigorating, really. And, and one last question on this sort of thing. And so I, I um, had someone who also writes for my publisher. My publisher said, could I interview them? And she's a computational neuroscientist. This was, for someone, I'm personally very interested in neuroscience. I'd never heard of computational neuroscience. It makes sense because, again, it comes down to this data modeling and all that. Is is that something that your team ever bump into or use or... I would, um, so I'm not a computational neuroscientist, although I think anybody in imaging has to do some computation because really when you're looking at MRI scans, you're really looking at voxels in a brain, right? And it's digits <laughs> when it comes down to it, it's different shades of gray is really all we're looking at. Um, so there is a certain element of, of computational there, but I think, you know, I, I think working with computational neuroscientists to figure out these larger networks of how they're working together and modeling different systems and models, you know, can we get down to modeling the level of 
the neuron, you know, uh, these micro skills um, using computational neuroscience and applying it to larger sort of macro levels of analysis like MRI scan. I think we just all have to work together in terms of, um, of this and, and draw, you know, for me, so I'm a human neuroimager and I, I think it's great for many reasons, you know, it's the only way we can look at the brain in a living person. That's a bonus. <laughs> we can look at the living the brain as it's growing over time, but also knowing the limitations of that. So knowing that when we are looking at an MRI scan, a picture of the brain, we're sort of looking at it at a very, very low resolution. So we can't see synapses. We can't see neurons. We can't even see populations of neurons within this mm. shades of gray that we're looking at. So recognizing the limitations and then going to the computational folks or going to the animal modelers who can then look at the cellular levels or you know, use computational models of neural networks and to learn from them and to, to you know, say maybe MRI can give you an idea of which networks we should be looking at or which brain regions we should be looking at, but let's go look at other disciplines as well and bring it all together. Let's look at, talk with the geneticists as well. There's different, you know, imaging genetics is this growing field. You know, we, we sort of think the behavior comes from the brain, but the brain also comes from your genes. So, you know, we, we have to look at all of these different levels of science together. I get very excited about epigenetics as well. I remember reading about it a long time ago when no one was really interested in it and, and uh, sort of trying to explain what I thought I was reading about to people and they're like, it's really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I think it's, it's all utterly fascinating and, and incredibly exciting and also incredibly hopeful um, when we look at, I mean, one of the pro bono pieces of work I do is for a, a charity called United for Global Mental Health and they work with the UN and various bodies but it's just looking at the prevalence um anxiety depression all of these things and coming out of COVID but then with the comorbidities and it's like the more we can learn the more we can help people and I think that's back to what you were saying right at the beginning that's what that's what's driven you as well from my understanding of it to do what you do because you want to help people and so you're doing something that is very focused on an area which I think doesn't get enough attention you're pulling together data that's incredibly robust to try and help people basically yeah. live a better life yeah um, it's slow. I recognize that. And I think about that every day with the participants in my study who are really donating their time and energy for us to learn from them to hopefully help future generations, right? So it does weigh on me heavily that I'm not able to help the participants in my studies right to now, today. You know, I wish we could do it faster. Um, but but it is a long haul that we're in for. And if we can help them along the way and support them. If I could just mention one final thing that, that, that we've done in my lab is that, you know, we're very focused on girls and non-binary teens. And um, we ask them to participate in my studies and do a lot of things and you know, all of these assessments, you know about this from what your daughter has done as well. Um, MRI scans, you know, these are not easy. So one thing that we've done in my lab is we've formed a social support group specifically for girls and non-binary teens. And it's been pretty well received, I'd say. So, so this came about, we call it NeuroTeens. And right now it's a virtual support group and it's not clinical. Like I said, I'm not a clinician, but um, it was it was really born from one of the families in our study asked me, you know, my daughter, she's in high school now. There's lots of support groups for autistics, but they're boys, you know, it's mainly cisgender boys in these groups because there's so many boys, more boys with autism. She said, are there any groups that you know of specifically for girls? And um, I didn't know of any. And so we started one because there was a need, you know? So one of our mottos is help if you can. And, um, Another motto is something is better than nothing. <laughs> That's what I keep telling my lab. And so I literally just, I put out a, a Slack, we Slack in my lab and said, does anybody want to start a group for um, autistic girls with me? 
And within 30 seconds, everybody said, yes, they wanted to do this. And then within two months, we had our first virtual session and we fumbled along the way, you know, but again, with this motto of something is better than nothing, because literally there was nothing out there for, for these. And we know high school is hard enough. Having autism is hard enough navigating high school. And then, um, you know, not having a, a peer group to, to relate to is really hard. And because there are fewer girls with autism out there, they couldn't. So we just wanted to make a way to facilitate bringing them together so that they realized that they're not alone, that there's other girls like them, non-binary. We, we decided to open it up to non-binary teens as well. And this has been a completely volunteer effort from um, mainly staff at the Mind Institute who've just come together to, to do this out of the kindness of their hearts. But it's something that we can give back immediately. And that was important to me because these other scientific questions that I've been talking about today, we're not gonna have answers for another few years. You, you might not, I mean, I would say though, you might not have answers, but what you are discovering and sharing is helpful regardless and that's one of the reasons I really want to speak to you because I want more people to hear about what you're doing because it is helpful it's helpful as someone who is interested from a personal as well as a professional standpoint but I think that thing with the group what's interesting is in what you're talking about there is human connection and it doesn't need to you don't you don't need to be a clinician no one in your team needs to be a clinician you're creating the uh, opportunity for these people to share yeah. and that is the, one of the most powerful things I think we can do as humans is to share and to feel supported like you said and connect. Peers. exactly and connect. Yes. exactly and so I think that's absolutely phenomenal I am a big fan and I will continue to follow your work it's been absolutely wonderful to speak to you thank you so so much for your time thank you for what you're doing and I hope to meet you in person at some point. Yes, I would love that. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share all of this. Um, I love talking about our work. I, I love what, what I do. I feel very fortunate to do what I do. Um, and so thank you for inviting me. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more about me and my work, go to FionaMurden.com or my social media handle is also FionaMurden. If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe, review and tell your friends. It would be a massive help. But for now, goodbye and I hope you have a great week.